The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. If you live in certain parts of North America and you're interested in growing fruiting trees, then for sure you've heard about the native pawpaw tree that grows in much of North America. It's a beautiful, tropical-looking tree with big leaves, and the pawpaw tree produces an amazing fruit that has the texture of custard and tastes a bit like banana, a bit like mango, maybe with a little touch of vanilla. It's really a unique fruit that is perishable, so you'll probably never see pawpaws for sale in your local grocery store. And so, some of us have rushed out to buy pawpaw trees to plant in our yards, in our orchards, or in our community gardens. So, here's my question. Has anybody listening to the show today done just that and then found yourself with a dead pawpaw tree in a few years? Well, that's what happened to me, and I happen to know that I am not alone. I was super keen to plant pawpaws in my community orchard in Toronto, Canada, and so I ordered my first two pawpaw trees from a local nursery. Now, this nursery, which shall remain nameless, sent me trees that were little tiny sticks about eight inches tall and pretty delicate. Those little babies didn't last very long in our park. They were probably mowed down by the park gardeners who didn't even know they were there. So then I tried again and got really nice little potted pawpaws from another local nursery. And those pretty little trees looked pretty tough. They lasted a bit longer, but within three years, both trees were dead. So what did I do wrong? If pawpaws are native trees here in North America, then you'd think they'd grow like gangbusters in our climate. There are so many mysteries around the native pawpaw tree, so I've decided the time has come to do a special program that will explore everything you've always wanted to know about pawpaw trees and were afraid to ask. So, standing by on the line is a pawpaw expert who is willing to roll up his sleeves and tell us what to do. 
He is horticulturalist Dan Bissonnette, author of the Pawpaw Grower's Manual for Ontario. And he's got lots of experience with these trees and understands all their quirky qualities. Now, during the show, you too will for sure have questions to ask and stories to tell, and I'd like to hear them. So during the live show, please do email us at instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to tell me your first name and the city where you're writing from. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. So on the line is Dan Bissonette. Dan, how are you today? I'm great. Good to be here, Susan. Well, it's really great to have you unravel the mystery of pawpaws. And I'll tell you something. The first mystery is, what is a pawpaw? I already got an email from John in Toronto. Now, John, he he wants to know what's the difference between American pawpaws and Australian pawpaws. And I think that the whole papaya pawpaw confusion is in there, too. So can you tell me a little bit about pawpaws? Mm, that, that is a kind of a thorny question, um, because, of course, there's also references to a pawpaw in the Caribbean. And as far as I know, Susan, these are pawpaws in name only. They're, uh, the pawpaw we'll find down in Australia or the Caribbean are entirely different species with entirely different fruit and entirely different growing habits. Um, the name, and this is why uh, I focus on our our local our the pawpaw that's indigenous to North America, which the Latin name is Asimina triloba. Okay, Asimina triloba. So it's going to look different, taste different, totally different tree than the Australian papa and the papaya that we get in the supermarket. Am I right? That's correct. Yes, I, um, and. and Papa is, as I understand in the Caribbean, is a slang for papaya. Aha. Yes. Okay, that helps a lot. So can you just tell me really briefly, how did you get involved with growing papa trees? Well, I'd always been interested in native trees as a, as a horticulturalist and as somebody who studied nature. Um, where I delved into it more actively was I spent uh, 15 years working for an educational charity called the Naturalized Habitat Network. And when I was giving seminars on native trees and native plants, uh, I couldn't help but notice if I, if I mentioned or discussed pawpaw, the amount of blank stares and the amount of curiosity I, I would receive from the audience. And I realized that it was really an unknown tree and that here in Ontario, people did have some sense of our natural heritage in terms of oaks and hickories and maples, but the Papa was an unknown quantity that I felt had a lot of merit to explore. Why? Why do you feel it's worth exploring? Well, back in the, um, around 2009, 2010, I was looking for a new project for the Naturalized Habitat Network. And at that point, our, uh, our local economy here in, in uh, Windsor and Essex County, where I live, was really, really down. We were part of the automotive industry. We were part of Canada's Rust Belt. And we had reclaimed the title of Unemployment Capital of Canada. And when I was getting feedback for people on new projects, uh, a lot of people said, Dan, I, you promote native plants to support wildlife. What can you do to promote food that I can feed my family with or something that can help the economy? So I realized that although it would be a challenge of a juggling act, that somehow we could promote the pawpaw as an indigenous species 
but use it in a sustainable way to help community-supported agriculture and organic farming and provide a little bit of an economic boost to our region. So at that time, Dan, did had you actually tasted pawpaw fruit before? Because I, as I mentioned in my introduction, you, you just can't pick it up in the supermarket, can you? Um, you know, I really can't remember when I first ate pawpaw fruit. I believe I had. And, uh, of course, the but by 2010, when I was actively involved, I, that's when I really started um, making notes and documenting how the fruit tasted and, and what, what its proper ripening time was. So tell us about how it tastes. Just give us... Well, before I think we... your description was really good. Uh, it, it's almost a, compl- well, it's a complex flavor. To quickly chew it and swallow it is to shortchange the experience. You, you, I, when I taste it, I get flavors of custard, mango, and a little bit of an aftertaste of pear. So, uh, and, and of course, the, the pawpaw is being widespread. You may have subtle flavor variations from one region to another as well. Well, and that's another question, because when it comes to our more conventional fruits, like our Ontario Macintosh apple, by the way, everybody came from Ontario, um, you know, where these trees are absolute clones. They are absolute copies of each other. So every Macintosh apple will pretty much taste exactly the same. But that's not always the case with pawpaws, is it? So does every pawpaw taste different? Well, yeah, there are. There, it's debatable because that taste to people varies, but there are changes in the flavor from its when you go when you consider the species goes as far down south as Tennessee and Arkansas and as far north as southern Ontario and New York State uh, and west into Nebraska, you are going to have subtle flavors and and to me it's not something that we should try and breed out of the species by creating cultivar clones. It's something that each region should be celebrating and adopting into its own with its own, you know, um, traditions and culinary treats. Well, now with apples, however, you plant an apple tree from a seed from an apple, and you don't even know if that apple is going to taste okay. It might be horrible, it might be hard. Um, Do you have a little bit more room to play with the pawpaw? No matter what pawpaw seed you, you sprout and you plant, it'll have a yummy fruit. You know, I guess I know that bananas, I think, have less uh, genetic diversity than apples. So maybe this is one of those fruits that will taste good no matter what. Yeah, I, I know. But growing up on the farm, when we used to see an apple that seeded out, you know, my parents would say, well, that's a wild tree. Um, the apple in its natural state is a very small fruit. The pawpaw in its natural state is you know, a completely competent, good-sized fruit. Um, so you you do, I, I'm not sure if I fully understand your question, though. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, if you're planting a seedling tree from a seed, so this is not a clone, this is not a grafted tree, do you know for sure, for sure, that the fruit will be tasty and yummy? Or yes. is there a chance yes. it'll be I yucky? I can personally guarantee that. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, your I have back. this on the radio. I have this on the radio oh, yeah. now. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so I have already a couple of questions coming in, actually. The questions are flying in. But before we start digging into those questions, I said in the beginning that there are many challenges, or I've had challenges in growing pawpaw trees. Now, 
is is this is it just me or are there some problems what are the main problems people uh, encounter when growing these amazing native well, trees? Well, let, let me start off by saying that you're in good company because in the past, I have killed my share of pawpaw seedlings. I appreciate um, you sharing that with me yeah, today. Thank yeah, you. I'm, I'm fallible. <laughs> Anyways, uh, there's a few things that come to mind. I certainly sympathize when you bought those uh, bare root pawpaws. Uh, I do not recommend that. It's very risky. And uh, the, the other issues with potted pawpaws is if people are selling them at only one or two years old, they're very uh, susceptible to winds, and they're completely susceptible to direct sunlight. Ultraviolet light can kill them. At the same time, there's another issue that I have with certain growers, and that is undersized pots. Young pawpaw seedlings produce a very large root in the first year or two of their life. When you have a tree that has leaves, as big as that, you need to drink. And when I see people selling pawpaws in one-gallon pots or half-gallon pots, that root gets so constricted that it can't develop normally. And unlike maple trees and oak trees that can bounce back if their roots have been restricted, pawpaws seldom bounce back, and, and they'll usually die if their roots have been too confined for too long. So interesting. I have a question here from Patty. I've got a bunch of linked questions actually to what we're talking about. So you're talking about pawpaws being grown in pots to then be transplanted. So Patty from NYC writes, can pawpaws be grown in pots? I have no yard. In other words, can you start growing your pawpaw tree in pot in a pot and leave it outside or in you know in a nice big 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 pot and never plant it in the ground and will it survive? Probably not. You would need an inconceivably large pot. Um, now, myself, as a grower, I, I grow my seedlings directly in pots. I don't do field digging. And I'll grow in what's called a three-gallon tea. That's a tall, that's a rose pot, three-gallon rose pot. But by year four, they have to get transplanted or else they'll become too root-bound. Uh-huh. So the, our caller from New York City Patty. It's actually a great way to start seedlings, but it's not a permanent solution for a landscape decision. Well, Patty already wrote us back. She said, wow, you answered my question. Thank you. <laughs> so, God bless those New Yorkers. Yay for New York. Okay, yeah. let's go back. Gary uh, in the studio is going to take me, yes, to, to this other email we got. Now, this is from somebody whose first initial is D. I don't have his name. Maybe he'll email us to tell us his name and where he's from. And this is a little complicated. A question for Dan regarding, regarding transplanting pawpaws when they are field-grown or bare root. So we talked a little bit about this before. Some say the pawpaws must be transplanted only while fully dormant. Others compare them to magnolias and say to dig them either when pushing buds or showing new leaves. One nursery in the U.S. even suggests keeping the little seedlings in a moistened bundle indoors until they are fully leafed out, then planting them in the field as usual. How do we decipher the transplanting enigma? Well, thank you very much, Dee. Send us your name and where you're from. So, again, this is touching upon the idea. Should you be planting potted trees? Should you be planting bare root pawpaw trees? And at what point is it best to plant them? Dormant, when the buds are opening, or when they're fully leafed out? I know where I live, Susan. My best results have been 
late April, very early May, just as the buds are breaking. <clears throat> now, in the southern portion of the Pawpaws Range down in Tennessee and Kentucky, there may be more flexibility than what we have in the northern range. But I know myself, late April, early May, have given me the best results. And you're, and you mentioned you're only planting potted uh, pawpaws, not bare roots. So you actually wait for them to start opening their blossoms a little bit. Wouldn't that be scary well, for the tree? It's already active. Things. Wouldn't that be scary for your little tree? It's already active, opening its blossoms and uh, getting ready to, to come back from out of dormancy. Why is it that it's good to plant them when they are blossoming? Well, I mean, only the early, early stage blossoming. I, I have to agree with you that if a person were to, in Ontario or you know, northern United States were to wait into mid-May, late May, then the equation flips around and they're starting to, and the risk is outweighing the benefits. Mm-hmm. So only early bud break. Okay, so that's our answer for D is we, we, we're going to suggest that, you know, dormant are only just just waking up from dormancy and potted is best. Now, let's see. There's one more question here, Cliff, from Toronto. Can you ask your guest if he is aware of anyone grafting pawpaws in a high-density spindle type uh, of arrangement? Are there, is there such a thing even as dwarf pawpaws? So... You know, high high density growing of pawpaws, like you know, almost espalier like, or is, does that oh, exist? Oh, I've never, I, I've never seen any examples of that. I know apples lend themselves to espalier. The pawpaw actually, do, the less you prune it, the better it does. And it, uh, I don't, from my own, I know, and from talking to other people, it, they don't lend themselves well to modified shaping their, you know, shaping their roots or intensive grafting. So I don't know of any kind of modified spindling or anything, or let alone one that works. Well, and, and I think your point is really important. So we're comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing apples and pawpaws. And apples like pruning. I mean, we shape our apple trees. We prune them every year. Um and so what you're saying is the less you mess with your pawpaw, the better, in a way. That's right. I, I've, I've had, I have three pawpaws that I'm growing in my own landscape. And, to this, and I've had them since 2013 when I planted them. And I think I've invested two minutes in pruning them in the last five years. Wow. And basically, I only removed uh, two crossing branches and one branch that was so low, it was a bit of a health and safety issue. It's when we talked on the phone, Dan, earlier uh, when we were preparing for our interview. You said, "You know what? One of the best ways to kill your papa is to treat it like an apple tree." Well, that's right. I remember when I was giving a series of seminars when I created the um, the Canadian Ed- Community Education Program for the papa, and people were asking me if they could fit a papa onto their yard and whether or not they should take the seminar. And my answer at the time was. If you have enough room for a semi-dwarf apple tree, you can grow a pawpaw. However, I would remind them that if they treated that pawpaw the exact same way as they treated an apple, they might kill it. 
So we'll go into a little bit more detail about that after um, we're going to have a little commercial break in a minute. And we've got some more questions in as well. So we'll talk about those after the break. So let's just take a few minutes to listen to words uh, from our sponsors. Dan, is that okay? You can stay on the line. I'm looking forward to it. We'll talk about pawpaws and pollination. We will eventually talk about how to start your own pawpaw trees from seed, all sorts of good stuff. So hold on the line and listeners, hang on. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back after this short break. Did you know that one of the best ways to ensure organic fruit tree growing success is to order the right tree for your unique conditions? You'll get the widest selection of cultivars from a specialist fruit tree nursery, where you can find heirloom trees, disease-resistant varieties, and more. To download a free list of fruit tree nurseries in Canada and the United States, go to orchardpeople.com slash buy fruit trees. That's B-U-Y-Fruit-Trees. Enjoy the list and your new fruit tree. And learn more about how to care for your tree by signing up for my free monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. Looking for a quick, easy-to-apply an all-natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send Susan an email right now in Studio 101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. So in today's program, we're chatting about fruiting native pawpaw trees. And no, I'm not talking about papayas, a delicious exotic fruit, but the pawpaw, a native fruit. 
Now, even though this is a native tree in much of North America, many of us will not have tasted its delicious custard-like fruit. Why is that? In today's show, my guest is horticulturalist and pawpaw enthusiast Dan Bissonette, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about us, but about it. But before we chat with Dan, have you ever tasted a pawpaw? I'd love to hear from you. What were your thoughts about the texture and the taste? Did you actually like it? How would you describe the flavor? Frankly, do you think it's worth it for us to plant these beautiful trees if growing local organic food and sustainability is our goal? So you can write us right now at instudio101 at gmail.com with your thoughts. And remember to mention your first name, your location, uh, and yeah, your information. So that's at instudio101 at gmail.com. So, Papa expert Dan Bissonette, author of the Papa Grower's Guide, is on the line. Hi, Dan. Great to be back. <laughs> so, let me talk. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, pawpaws and pollination. Because I know that's one mistake people make. They plant their beautiful pawpaw tree, and if it does survive um, planting and it grows nice and big, and then it just it becomes this leafy, beautiful tree, and you never get fruit. So, what's, what's going on there? Well, there's probably two or three things that work. One is that the plants are very seldom self-pollinating. They need to have a, a nearby tree of, of slightly different genetics that can, you know, that they can exchange pawpaw with. The other mechanism is that bees and other insects that we commonly associate with pollination don't have much interest in the pawpaw. And what the animal that does mostly do most of the pollination for pawpaw is, is flies, particularly the blue, blue bottle fly, sometimes referred to as a green bottle fly. Hmm. And flies, compared to bees, are relatively lazy. They don't fly as far. They don't tend to explore very much. So if you do have two pawpaws and they're 60 feet apart, you probably won't get much pollination. Really? So the, the trees should be a little bit more closer to each other, preferably, you know, less than 40 feet apart. So you're telling me that, that flies are lazy? Flies are unmotivated. Let, let's hmm. put it diplomatically, shall hmm. we? So they're, they're unmotivated to go far, far away from one tree to the next. So basically, if I have a yard and I have a pawpaw tree, I probably need two if I want fruit. Yes. Now, I know if space is an issue, I, uh, when I had my community education program, I had two neighbors who both had limited-sized lots, and neither had space for two pawpaw trees. So they positioned their trees close to each other with only a fence in between. And as far as I know, they're getting good results. Oh, nice. That's good. Yeah. And and what about the flowers themselves? Are they, so obviously this is a cross-pollinating tree. So that there are there some male trees and some female trees? Do you have to get a good, part, you know, a girl and a boy together? <laughs> no, I, that was a, that's a common question. Like, are papas dioecious? Do they come in male and female? And in fact, uh, they're not. Both the plants have both male and female. And what's especially curious is that the the flowers begin the first stage of their life as males, giving off pollen. And as the flower matures and ages, its female organs uh, become active, and and then it begins to receive pollen from other flowers. Hmm. But the pollen has to come from another pawpaw tree. So hopefully their timing works out so that there is a 
uh, a tree with some male, you know, pollen moving off, and then a tree that's in the female phase. It's, it's mm-hmm. I guess, a timing thing. Yeah. Well, while it's possible that the very first pop-off flowers may not, you know, completely pollinate or be pollinated, or the very last ones, because of pawpaw trees don't blossom in unity, they'll they might have a period of 10 days to maybe as long as two weeks between the first flower and the last flower so that there's always enough activity of flowering going on that somebody is bound to cross-pollinate with somebody else. Well, and here's a question that came in from Cliff in Toronto again, and he says, (laughs) he says, I hear we should hang rotting meat to pollinate. What is he talking about, Dan? Yeah, I hear that a lot. And yet it's never been tested in, you know, formal field trials. But the premise is there. Because flies uh, don't like the same sweet-smelling flowers that bees do, they're actually attracted to things like carrion. And pop-off flowers have a very mild, subtle carrion flavor to them. I've never known of anybody to try it. Hmm. It certainly has merit. The only concern I would have is maybe to put a piece of you know, carrion or a piece of meat a few days or w- weeks ahead of the flowering so that, I don't know, you want it to become a lure but not a, not a complete distraction because right. if it's so much meat, you'll have every fly in the neighborhood fixating on the meat only and not on the flowers. So my idea would be to time it a week ahead of the blossoming and see if you can draw the flies to, to, to the pawpaw trees. And then once the meat is finished, then hopefully, in theory at least, they'll move their attention to the, to the blossoms. So, so with so many, and I mean, so much of what I do is around teaching people about fruit trees and how to grow them. And one of the wonderful things people love about lots of types of fruit trees is the blossoms smell so beautiful. Like, it's just lovely. And yet pawpaw blossoms when a pawpaw orchard is in bloom what does that smell like do you even want to walk through no that shouldn't be an issue the, really the, the scent is so subtle i myself have a great sense of smell and i practically have to bury my nose in the blossom to pick up anything right. walking a few meters past a tree shouldn't give you anything of note okay We've got an email from John, John in Toronto. Each time I have a question, he says, it gets asked by the next person emailing in. Very interesting show. Thanks. So thank you, John, very much for that email. Um, I know also uh, uh, Gary in the studio just told me we have lots of listeners tuned into the show from Italy. If you are listening to the show and you are from Italy, we want to hear from you. Do you guys have pawpaws? What's the interest of pawpaws in Italy? I'd love to hear from you. So, okay, so let's see. And, and a quick aside, Susan. Yes. I had, when I attended the International Pawpaw Conference in 2011 at Kentucky State University, one of the people, one of the delegates present was a fellow from Holland, and he was having very good success with pawpaw trees. And as I, as I understand it, portions of Europe have, you know, a climate and a seasonal cycle that is so comparable to, you know, northeastern United States and southern Canada that the pawpaws are doing okay. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, let's see. You know, I had a feeling this was going to be a lively show, and we certainly have lots of really interesting questions. I have one here from Aaron 
In Falmouth, Maine. Okay, so here's what Aaron says. Hi, Susan. I love pawpaws, although my trees are not producing yet. One wonderful feature of pawpaws I haven't heard you mentioned yet is that they are resistant to both deer and rodents. Oh my gosh, that is a great feature. These animals can be very destructive to fruit trees in my area, and it's great to have some trees that don't have issues with them. Also, he says, hand pollination can be helpful with pawpaws, especially if you only have two trees, and considering how the fruit grows in clusters. So what are your comments about that, Dan? Um, yeah, actually, he shares a lot of great ideas um, with regards to, excuse me, Susan, what was his first point? His first point was a really good one. He oh, says, the Jennings. Yeah, yeah. De- resistant to deer and rodents was the first one. Yeah, and pawpaws produce a series of chemical compounds called acetogenins. Now, when a tree is very young, in its first or second year, it doesn't produce enough acetogenins to thwart rabbits and mice and other rodents. So I would recommend, you know, protective cage around them for the first at least three years. Hmm. But after the tree gets older and it builds up these acetogenins, which, which will be found, found in the new bark and the leaves and even the skin of the fruit. And this is, uh, this is what makes them unpalatable to deers and other animals. When I go into a natural forest, a natural pawpaw grove in the forest, I find no evidence of, of grazing or biting or anything like that. Now, these acetogenins are the very same thing that makes the pawpaw a natural fit for organic farmers because there really is no need, there's no business case to use insecticides on these, on these trees. So essentially, these chemicals, I guess they're a chemical or a hormone that the yeah, tree it's, produces? It's, it's a family of chemicals, yes. So, so, okay, so now we understand once the tree is a little bit more mature, so that'll protect the tree from deer and rodents, but you're saying it's going to protect that tree from insect infestations? Mm-hmm. I have found a little bit of evidence of Japanese beetles nibbling oh. on them in early spring before the leaves are fully formed. But other than that, I rarely have, I, I've never seen any other problems with them. And what about what about common fruit tree diseases like canker or fungal diseases and stuff like that? Do do pawpaws the suffer? The only time I've seen evidence of that was when a pawpaws were grown uh, between two buildings where there was very little airflow mm. or where there was really really bad drainage. Um, I saw another case where a pawpaw branch was broken off in a nearby branch. Uh, that had been grown in shade for the first part of the season was suddenly exposed to full sunlight and it got a little bit of sun scald on the fruit. Ah. But really, if a person has good, you know, growing conditions, things like blight and and mold and things are practically a non-issue. So I want to thank Aaron for this fantastic question. Thank you, Aaron. And and let's go back. There was, we were, you were talking about sun and Angela writes us and Angela doesn't tell us where she's from. And she says, how much sun to grow, Papa? So you were talking about the ideal planting condition. Obviously not between two buildings where there's no air circulation, but, but do that. does it need to be a sunny site? Well, actually, its relationship to sunlight is why the Papa is a lot less common across North America than what it used to be. As a young seedling, 
one to two years old, it it should not have any direct sunlight. It actually prefers shade and very diffuse light. The older it gets, the more affinity it has for sunlight. And now in a natural pawpaw grove, the older trees would shade the younger trees. And as the trees get older, they move through the forest canopy and get, you know, more progressively more sunlight. So my advice to people is, is you know, shade when they're young, partial shade when they're, uh, say, anything like four to seven years old. And then once they're approaching their fruit producing, the more sun they can get, the better. Oh, that is, that's really useful. And it's actually a question in my mind, um, because when you think about commercial orchards, and there are some people who are organic growers who, who would like to market this fruit in the future, but you think about a big, open, sunny field with lots of fruit trees in it. So I guess pawpaws are going to be tricky in that way. Can they even be grown in uh, as an organic orchard, because or, or would you have to put up some temporary shelter and then take it down? It's, yeah, it's a tricky question. If if we're thinking about the traditional checkerboard layout of an orchard, wide open, uh, that may not lend itself to the pawpaws. I know when I write in my book and consult with people, I actually try to get them to visualize a pawpaw orchard as the extent of, as the extension of a of a habitat project. For example, if a pawpaw grove had, you know, large oaks and hickories to the west, buffering the trees against wind and, and, you know, harsh conditions, they would probably do better. Um, that, so, so, you know, a conventional orchard, maybe not. An innovative, creative orchard, it's worth considering. Very interesting. That is very cool. Now, Dan, I think we have a very big compliment for you here. We actually have an email from Florence, Italy. How do you say hi? how do you say hi in Italian? Ciao. I don't know. Ciao. Ciao. Yeah. Okay. I thought ciao is goodbye. Well, it's, it's both. It's both. This yeah. is Gary in the studio. Says it's both as our resident Italian expert, right, Gary? Well, I'm Italian. So. Oh, oh, there you go, handy. <laughs> half you see, Italian, every half. studio should have a half Italian person in it. So we have an email from Carla, and she says ciao from Fo- from Florence, Italy. Such a nice show. Yes, Papa are here. Beautiful fruit. Carla, thank you so much for writing. That's a great call. That is a really, really nice thing. We'd love to hear from your colleagues. Oh, and Angela wrote us to say thank you for the answer. Angela is in Daytona, Florida. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So, Angela, da- from formerly of Parts Unknown. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But can Papa grow in Florida? From what I understand, it's too warm. Papa has four other members in its genus that all grow in Florida and extreme southern Alabama. And Papa is the only member of this family that requires temperate conditions. Once you, the, the, as far as I understand, uh, central Tennessee is the southern extent of its natural range. Okay. Well, I'm so glad Angela emailed in anyways. So, oh, it's great to hear from her. It is. I like hearing from Angela. So, okay, Dan, we're going to take a moment. I so appreciate the wonderful sponsors that make this show possible. So we're going to hear um, some messages from our sponsors. You'll hold on the line, right, Dan? <coughs> sure. Okay. And to our listeners, please stay tuned. After the break, we're going to talk about propagating the pawpaw tree from seed 
amongst other things. Now, should you order your seeds from another part of the continent or another part of the world? That may be a very bad idea, and we'll find out why in just a few moments. So do you have any thoughts or questions about our conversation so far? Send an email to us live right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. My name is Mike McNair, and I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists. They're professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture and we have many years of experience. We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call. Here's how to reach us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon. Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario and Coquitlam, B.C., Visit UniversalFieldSupplies.com for more information. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, it's simple, it's easy, it's fun. Send us an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, Reality Radio 101's resident horticulturalist, Susan Poisner. Hi, I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. 
a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, per- permaculture, and arboriculture, and lots more. Thank you so much for tuning in. So in today's program, we're exploring everything you've ever wanted to know about the native pawpaw tree, but have been afraid to ask. And those of you who have tried to grow this tree and failed miserably, as I did, know who you are. So for those of you who are considering planting a pawpaw tree, it's really a great idea, but you need to do a little bit of research before you go out and buy your tree or before you plant your seed. So if you have questions, please do send them in to instudio101 at gmail.com because on the line is horticulturalist and pawpaw expert Dan Bissonette. Hi, Dan. You're still there, huh? I'm still here. Great to be back. (laughs) Okay, great. Okay, so why is it important to do your research before buying or planting a pawpaw tree or a uh, pawpaw seed? Well, despite the fact that the pawpaw has a fairly large range, it is very individually adapted to its individual regions. It's a term that I've heard called uh, regionally idiosyncratic. So in other words, Nebraska pawpaws are adapted to grow in Nebraska. You know, New York State pawpaws are adapted to grow in New York State, and so on. Even though they're all the same species, moving the indigenous pawpaws from their specific area of origin can sometimes give you very mixed results if you move them from one region to another. I'm actually an advocate of buying of people buying pawpaws that are indigenous to their own region. It's to me, if people are hunting for pawpaw, I would advise them to seek out your native plant growers before you go to a conventional garden center. Uh, they're going to have the locally sourced, you know, from the locally sourced plants from the local gene pool. They're not going to be grafted. There might not be the latest, hottest cultivar, but they're adapted to your region. Hmm. Well, with pawpaws, are there actually actually already cultivars out there? Like, are there grafted pawpaw There's cultivars? There's been cultivars since the 1920s in the United States. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But part, where, where the problem with cultivars gets even more pronounced, for those of us in the northern range, is that most of the cultivar sources are, 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 are sourced from plants that are indigenous to Kentucky and southern Ohio. So when we see these you know, fine, nice-looking cultivars in a garden catalog. If we bring them up to southern Ontario, state of Maine, New York State, they're not really adapted to our, our, our northern winters, and they often don't make it through the winter, or, or they, they suffer, they don't, they don't leaf out properly in a, in a cool spring. Hmm. So really, you're increasing your chances of success if you do your homework, you find... Even a tree, well, how difficult would it be? Let's say if I live uh, near a woodland or whatever, and there is a pawpaw tree growing in the wild there, you know, how would difficult it would it be to get the fruit, get a seed, start your seed, and plant your tree from that seed? Well, it would probably take the same amount of research as one would go to um, to, to buy a seedling. For one thing, you should never let the seed dry out too much. If it dries out for more than a few days, the seed is actually dead. It's hmm. finished. Uh, my advice would be to, well, first of all, you've got to be ethical. If you're going to go into the forest, you only collect a small percentage, less than 10% of the seed you find. 
usually one or two pieces of fruit will give you all the seeds you need anyways. So I would, I would clean the fruit, in, you know, as soon, once I get it home and then separate it and then stratify it in, in moist sand and comp, moist sand and peat moss and, and put it in the refrigerator, not the freezer, the refrigerator. And which is I right now I've got uh, probably about a hundred seeds in my refrigerator right now. I've had to give up shelf space for some of my favorite foods hmm. for the whole winter, and then come and about a week from now I'll be pulling those out, and uh, in in about two or three weeks they'll gradually form radicals. At which point I'll be planting them out in pots under a shade canopy. Hmm. So we're looking at about four months of cold stratification, and then, uh, you know, a few weeks of warm stratification when the seeds wake up. Okay. And you, with your, this 100 trees or so you're planting, what are you going to do with them? Do you sell them? Do you plant them? Yeah, yes, I, I sell them. Now, keep in mind, there seems to be a, a mixed viability of seeds. I may have 100 seeds, but maybe only 60 will actually form seeds and, you know, so, so there's a certain amount of inviability amongst them. And the odd situation I've got this year is that um, supply cannot keep up with demand. I, part of it is maybe associating with Susan Poisoner or something, <laughs> but I'm getting more calls than what I can keep up with. I'm actually considering a raffle system where all my potential buyers put their name in a hat and I just raffle off whoever I can supply. Well, that sounds like a fair idea. And next year, could you plant more, or is that just too much work? Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm actually considering expanding my nursery and gaining some more square footage so, and, and some more shade cloth so I can fit in you know, another 50, maybe 50 more plants. Now, before you get emails and calls from people who are listening to this show today from all over the place, I will share something you shared with me that you say no to people. You ask them where they're from, and if they're from too far away, you refuse to send them your seeds or your trees. Is that true? Yeah, and that's not that I'm being a garden snob. It's (laughs) part of my belief about keeping the pawpaw in its indigenous range. Um, Like, for example, the pawpaw in Ontario has four distinct regions and and i you know not long ago i had somebody from near niagara falls ontario who said could you send me some pawpaw and i said you actually have a natural populations of them in your own county and i'd encourage you to find some suppliers and and stay local hmm Mean, 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 but you're doing it for oh, a reason. Oh, <laughs> so I wanted to discuss with you on Facebook, I had a really interesting chat with Chris, and he grows papas outside Bloomington, Indiana. And I wanted to share this because it was quite an interesting little conversation. So he planted 100 bare root seedlings last year. He planted another 100 this past weekend, and they've all survived. He says, wild pawpaw are common in the understory of our woods. That's in Bloomington, Indiana area. The grafted ones that I purchased mail order in 2014 haven't matured as fast as I'd hope, as I'd hoped, but are plugging along. So I just wanted to take it a step further here because then we continued to chat, to chat and I wondered what he's going to do with all his pawpaws. And he said that uh, they, he plans to take them to a farmer's market and sell them directly to, or sell them directly from the farm. He's considering pawpaw ice cream. 
Also, local breweries are buying Papa Pulp to make Papa beer. That's amazing. So he says, if Papas are still hot in five years, I may make more money selling seed than anything else. That's the case now. Interesting, huh? Very interesting. Um, when I did the community education program for the Papa, we actually had a component for non growers, non, non-gardeners, and it was just a papa fruit information night where we, it was aimed at the culinary market, and we handed out sections of, portions of fresh fruit and gave ideas and suggestions for how to prepare the fruit, and we, our, the organization I worked for at the time, we went so far as to sponsor a papa dessert competition mm-hmm. at a local fair. That sounds fun. Yeah. So what were the desserts? It's amazing the versatility of this plant. Uh, a lot of sweetbreads, muffins, things like that, but also glazes and sauces, even a barbecue sauce. Really? Um, hmm. And it really lends itself to like cool and refrigerated desserts. Uh, my sister made a papa cheesecake that people loved, and and I know there are companies in the states that make papa ice cream. Uh, I'm I'm trying to experiment myself with a papa yogurt. I think the I think there's a lot of potential for this plant. So we have an email from Chris from North York, and it is it asks, do you know the nutritional breakdown of papa the fruit? You know, is it is it healthy? Is it a superfood? You know, superfood would be a a good way to describe it without signing, you know, without going all hyperbola. That was one of the things I researched when I wrote my book, and it's actually I actually have a chart that I locate based on findings from per, University of Purdue, okay, in which they talk about an admirable protein value, a vitamin C that's comparable to a similar sized orange, hmm. uh, potassium that is comparable to bananas, and uh, basically it has, I believe it has all the amino acids that human beings need to live. You know. I must say that is quite amazing when you think about native plants and native fruits. I mean, so much of what we grow, the apples, the pears, apricots, none of it is native. None of it. This is, it seems to me, one of the very few native North American fruiting trees, and it's very special. Well, I I agree, Susan. Admittedly, the term superfood is a, a bit of a marketing ploy, but what I find almost amusing is that all the so-called superfoods in the last five years come from areas far, far, far from our listening area, mm-hmm. Thailand, China, Japan. Perhaps the superfood has been growing under our noses all this time. Yeah, yeah. So the challenge is, and we'll go back as we end off the show, we'll go back to the beginning. The, the challenge seems to be starting them successfully. Those early years, the vulnerable years, I've got some more, um, you know, comments from Facebook. Uh, Sherwin, I don't know where Sherwin's from, but he writes, pawpaws have a very deep taproot. If you cut that off too short, you can jeopardize the survivability of the planting. And I have... I agree. Yeah, I have other people saying, here's um, Envid from Colorado. I tried planting in Colorado and they got too much sun and died. They were in a good location with improved soil and plenty of water. I won't be trying any time again soon. That's kind of sad. So, but, and yet there's well, I, others. I go back to the results I had of using 
rose pots, preferably three-gallon rose pots, tall, you know, tall pots. Let that root tap root grow uninhibited. And then at about the three to four-year mark, planting them out. At that stage, they can handle direct sunlight and a little bit of wind, but they're not so big where they're getting too pot-bound. Right. Yeah. And, and to balance it out, I also have success stories here from Facebook. Great. You know, Megan from Addison County, pawpaws grow well and produce well here in Addison County in Vermont. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, but I guess the moral of the story is keep trying, I guess. Is that what you did? Keep trying and keep learning. Yeah. Yeah. Like ever, everything to do with fruit tree care. I mean, it's a constant journey to learn more and more. And yeah. um, it's so interesting. So there you go. So uh, is there anything else, Dan, you've got, you, you know, we, we, I guess really we want to uh, tell listeners how they can get your book because I'm well, sure, sure there's Probably tons you, uh, more information. The thing I'd like to add is with regards to good soil, we talked about the root sizes, the root conditions, but in my own soil, like I worked in a blend of uh, topsoil and sand, and I actually carved out holes that were five feet wide and two feet deep. And with regards to my book, um, I, I sell it by mail order. I'm going to have it set up on my uh, Facebook page, which is Naturescape, or, or you can look up Dan Bissonette, and I'll have instructions on how people can order the book. And, it, and I can ship it to Canada as well as the United States. That's perfect. And I'll also, when I post the podcast version of this show, I'll make sure that there's a link where people can order your book. But actually, you mentioned soil, and we got another question from Cliff in Toronto about minerals. What kind of minerals do you need to think about in the soil? Like the special nutritional requirements, or is just good, nice organic matter in the soil good enough? There are varying views of that. I, I know the organic farmers who grow them, you know, they won't have the same fertilizer regimen as conventional farmers. But because... It is, one of, it is the largest natural fruit in North America. It does take some nutrition to produce that product. And tired uh, marginal soils will give you, you know, proportionate results. The more, soil, the more you can invest in the soil, its organic content and, and, and its, its nutrient profile, I mean, the better results you're going to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I loved what you said earlier in the show, the, the idea of integrating it into a... You know, if anything's good in a sort of more permaculture integrated uh, landscape with other plants and trees, then right. then pawpaw's a good one for that. Well, the phrase uh, semi-wild orchards, comes yes. to, it was a term that was applied to, you know, uh, our community-based agriculture for pawpaw. And I think that's something to think about. I think it's a great idea. Dan, I am so happy that you came on the show today. An hour goes by fast. It's it does. It's great to, to, to talk to you, Susan. It's great to talk to you, too, and we will be in touch, and I want to get that link so I can share it with the listeners and the many people who listen to the podcast afterwards, and I'm so sorry for them that it's too late for them to ask questions online, um, but uh, maybe they can send you those questions. Sure, I'll be happy so, to take some questions. Uh, and actually, quick email again from Aaron in Falmouth, Maine. We heard from Aaron before. Sure. He says, I have good luck establishing pawpaws with the shade of blue grow tubes or tomato cages covered in a row cover. I like that. Well, that's yeah, so, probably working good for the seedlings, yes. Yeah, that's good for the seedlings. And let's see, I think something else came in. 
Was there another email? I know myself, when I had to protect some young seedlings when I was new at this, I actually went to the hardware store and bought the screening for storm windows and fastened it to the cages that I made for them, and that gave me decent results. Oh, perfect. So it, it really, it's all about being creative. Yeah, and innovative. Yeah, And innovative and understanding the trees we're working with. It's all about educating ourselves on these trees and their needs, how we can fulfill their needs so that they can then maybe give us back some beautiful fruit and beautiful clean our air and, and a beautiful environment yeah. and all that good stuff. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it. <laughs> okay, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the You're show. You're very welcome. Thanks okay. for having me, Susan. Take care. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye now. That was Dan Bissonette. Dan lives and grows pawpaw trees and other native plants near Windsor, Ontario. I so appreciate Dan being on the show, and I really appreciate you guys, the listeners, for tuning in. Special thanks to those of you who submitted questions via email and Facebook. I love to hear your suggestions, your questions, and your stories. The Urban Forestry Radio Show is just about over for this month. My question to you is, did you enjoy it? I hope so. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast at orchardpeople.com slash podcasts. You will then be able to listen back to this show or to listen to any of our other archive shows that cover all sorts of topics relating to fruit trees, food forest, permaculture, and arboriculture. It would also be wonderful if you could go to Facebook and like us on our Orchard People Facebook page. Makes me feel loved. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. While you're visiting my website, orchardpeople.com, you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter, which is packed with great information about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and more. And you can check out my blog and download my free 11-page ebook called Growing Fruit Trees That Thrive. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from orchardpeople.com. I am so glad you tuned in, and I look forward to seeing you next month. listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. 
with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.